Stay hungry, stay foolish. Often the essence of this show is how do legacy or even startup organizations innovate in permanence? How do they create this DNA of innovation? And it dawned on me, you create this complex international structure in Visa, decentralized, no strict authority, no top-down leadership. How did you manage to pioneer so many novel solutions and so many innovations with such a complex organization as Visa was? It's very counterintuitive. When you look at such a structure with the size conditioned by the mechanistic industrial age organizations, the assumption is that such an organization would just simply disintegrate because it's too complex to make any serious decisions. But quite the opposite occurred. By pushing all or most of the authority and activity to the smallest and most peripheral places, quite the opposite occurred. And it has to do with self-organization and self-regulation. At the time, towards the end of my time there, as I've said, we had both the international organization and then we had regional organizations, Europe, Mideast, Africa, Latin America, Asia Pacific, etc., and so on. And then within those, uh, they often would have a national organization, such as Carta Blue in France, or Chargex in Canada, that unified the banks within a, a national structure. And then, of course, the primary activity, the issuance of products, was in the individual banks. And it even goes beyond that because each individual with a Visa card, credit or debit, actually constructs that card as a separate and unique card by how they use it, where they choose to use it, how they choose to use it, how they choose to settle the transactions. And every single Visa card is unique unto itself, and yet it's unified globally. So how to take decisions in such an organization was really something we had to experience. And it actually uh, ended up in this way. The international, the central board of what became Visa International Service Association globally could not meet uh, too often because the members came from different countries throughout the world. So it uh, decided to have quarterly board meetings. And those meetings would be two-day meetings, the first day to discuss all the kinds of things that they would need to make a decision on, the second day of the meeting to actually make the decisions. And because uh, the whole organization was cooperatively owned, immediately after every board meeting of the international, its actions would be distributed 
to the substructures who would then distribute to the national structures, which then distribute to the individual banks and so on. And at the quarterly board meetings, the board would take actions on things it had uh, discussed prior. But a major part of each quarterly meeting would be to discuss things that they intended to adopt at the next meeting. And so uh, when the board meeting minutes went out, within a matter of days, every single financial institution in the world would know what decisions had been made and what decisions the board intended to make three months later. Well, self-organization just occurred. Nobody needed to tell them what to do. Once the International Board had published a two-year schedule of meetings, the European Board would schedule a meeting at about a week or two weeks ahead of the Central International Meeting. And then, of course, uh, once their meeting schedules were established, each national substructure would uh, schedule their board meeting ahead of the regional meeting. And any other substructure, an individual bank, would schedule meetings ahead of their national and so on. So that every single institution and member would have time to analyze and make a decision on what it would like to see happen at the next board meeting, whether to approve or not to approve what they intended to do. And then um, if the banks would then notify their representatives on their national boards, and that board would discuss it and synthesize it and take a decision, and then their representative to the uh, regional board would be prepared to discuss it with all the other national groups and make a decision regionally on what they would like to see happen. And, of course, then they would have their member on the international board. So when the international board met in the next quarter, every single member throughout the world would have been able to influence the decision. And because they couldn't stop these meetings in any way or reschedule them, they either had to say they wanted to approve it or they didn't want to, did not want to approve it, or they had to abstain if they had no opinion. But in no way could they stop a decision from being taken by the next most central organization. And therefore, when the board met at their next quarterly meeting, the international board, they would be aware of all the decisions made at the more local level, and of course, then could make a decision. So it was possible to make even the most complex and global decision within 90 days, primarily because no one could stop the sequence of decisions from happening. So it became easily able to implement 
massive and complex decisions much more easily than any nation state or any corporation. And the other advantage was that every single owning member financial institution knew in advance what to expect. And therefore, they could be prepared for either an, an approval or a rejection at the global level. And if it was approved, they already would have their plans to come into conformity with it and so on. So this became an enormously effective and decisive organization, both in making and implementing decisions. And there were a lot of other incredible advantages. It required a very small staff because of the fact that it didn't try to do or govern precisely how any of these things would evolve. And it enabled us to self-insure against bank failures. There was no need, for example, to enforce procedures, fines, or penalties, or expel members. And there was no need for an investigative staff because if any bank was violating the procedures at any level, all of its competitors would know that and would automatically notify the appropriate board, and the board then could examine it. And if uh, they were in violation, it would simply take a notification to that bank of intent to fine or uh, otherwise discipline. And just the fact that it would be publicly known that you were in violation and would be fined was enormous self-induced pressure to bring the recalcitrant member back into line. And bank failures didn't even affect the system as the card programs and the visa programs were so profitable that any that became available for sale brought a 20% premium over the actual amount of the balances of cardholders so that if a bank wanted to uh, go out of business or was acquired by another bank, the program automatically continued at another member organization. This simply was almost unbelievably effective, both in making decisions and implementing them. And it had other advantages. It didn't require a uh, research staff. It didn't require a personnel department. It didn't require research and development staff because all of the actual execution of its products were done at the smallest level in the member banks. So if any bank innovated in some way and its innovation was not effective, it died out at the very small level and didn't affect the totality. But if uh, a bank anywhere innovated in providing something that was truly effective, knowledge of it would propagate through the system in, in a matter of weeks. 
and would be emulated by other banks. So uh, innovation was continual and bad judgment died out without noticeably affecting the system, but successes propagated it and, and continually built it. And so the more that each individual bank innovated and competed effectively, the more need it had to cooperate for to participate in the global system. And the more it cooperated in the essential parts, the more it could compete. So competition and cooperation existed simultaneously and drove one another. Therefore, it became uh, an incredibly successful program that in the early days was growing by 50% compounded annually, which is just almost hard to believe, but that's exactly what happened. Dee, you've literally just spelled out many, many books I've read, the principles you used. And I have to say, at the time you did this, there wasn't any books, there wasn't any literature to do this. The literature that you had read was a lot of philosophy, a lot of nature and understanding ecosystems and organizations in nature. And really, you just worked to those. And it dawned on me that you hired the right people, you created the right conditions, you treated them like humans, not like machines. And then you empowered their human ingenuity to figure it out for themselves. And then this idea of the co-opetition in order to have a competitive advantage was such a clever move and still is and still powers systems like Visa today. But despite all this, and this is the thing, and the question many ask, despite this immense odyssey that you embarked upon, full of innovation, full of serendipity, overcoming obstacle after obstacle, this period of your life after 14 years leading Visa to the pinnacle of success, then at 55, you decide to leave and open your life to new possibilities to pursue full-time the answer to the three questions that were still burning in your mind. I'd love if you shared this next section of the Odyssey. Well, uh, a lot of people couldn't understand why I would suddenly at the peak of success withdraw, and it has a lot to do with very personal feelings and beliefs. By 1984, when I decided to leave, I had proven, as far as I was concerned, the effectiveness of my beliefs about uh, organization and management and so on. There wasn't anything left to prove. Uh, Visa was almost like a, a rocket to Mars that had broken free of gravity and was shooting away at a, a blinding speed. It was. I knew that it it would uh, it would continue the exponential growth no matter what happened. And uh, truthfully, I never really enjoyed business. Uh, my love was, uh, was nature, philosophy, literature, and conceptual thinking. I didn't like to travel. And of course, Visa International was requiring me to travel throughout the world. And I 
have never enjoyed social events. And of course, there are a lot of events, uh, almost endlessly, night and day, that required social and, and political skills. And I've always believed that one of the great curses of humanity, or, or for to the individual, is ability to do extremely well things that you dislike. And so I could never really identify myself as a, a CEO of a massive organization. I always had the feeling I was playing a role. And the stresses of running it were enormous. And I developed a stress-related uh, problem, Meniere syndrome, which is an inner ear problem that affects your inability. And so uh, by age 55, I just had no desire to go on uh, uh, repeating myself running the same organization. So I made a, uh, I tried to leave Visa three times before and I've been persuaded to stay. So in 1984, I, I, uh, without uh, any uh, preparative discussion or any real pressures to do so, I gave a, gave a notice to all the boards on which I served that uh, was final and irrevocable. I told them I didn't want to discuss it. I didn't want more money. I didn't want anything. I was leaving, and the reason was that I wanted to open my life to new possibilities and that I wanted to return to the things I love best. And four years before I left, I had bought 200 acres of ravaged land and spent weekends there trying to restore it to health and beauty. And uh, I, I, I had an intense desire to, to return and rediscover myself uh, in nature. I wanted time for family. I wanted time for my oil painting, reading, study. I wanted to work with my hands again. So I, I, I drew down an iron curtain. The last thing I said to the boards that I've done the best I can. Now it's time to let those who can do better. And I took uh, all of my savings and what assets I'd accumulated and bought lifetime annuities for myself and my wife that would give us at least a minimal income and therefore avoid the necessity of having to work, I severed all business connections uh, and told my secretary I wanted no one to know where I was or my telephone number or what I was doing. And I uh, walked away from Visa for a life on these uh, rural acres uh, where I had a number of very happy years uh, building a, uh, up the, the uh, small ranch, learning to weld, learning to operate heavy equipment, learning to survey and re build roads and trails, and building a, a, an acre uh, 
20-foot deep trout pond, a campground. Uh, I built some barns, uh, created a woodworking and metalworking shop. And uh, in the process, uh, began planting trees. And before I left the ranch, I had planted uh, several thousand redwood, fir, and madrone, and other trees that were now uh, beginning to explode with growth. And in 1987, we built a house, first house we ever built, on top of a hill in the middle of the ranch, which was really a poor boy's dream realized. Because one wing of the house had a library and study and shelving for 4,000 books that I'd accumulated. And I, I then took up this idyllic life uh, of labor and nature, of reading, of study, of introducing my seven grandchildren to birds, animals, beaches, ocean, and forests and giving them an, an education in nature that would replicate to some degree what I've experienced in a youth. I loved listening to this part of the book and reading this part of the book, Dee, because you described those ravaged lands that you brought back to life and brought back to prosperity. And it reminded me of the industry that you had taken as well all those years previously that you took a ravaged industry, a a bank card industry that was in crisis and you put order on it. You put order on the chaos and it really replicated here for me. It was a kind of a metaphor of life that you were doing the same thing now with the lands, which was truly your, you felt that was your destiny. But I mentioned in the last question, those three burning questions were always in your mind and they didn't disappear just because you left Visa. You explain when you talk about in the book, when you're on the land and planting trees and fixing that land and nourishing the soil, that these questions still played on your mind. And there's one scene you talk about in particular where there's a storm on the land. And I thought of this storm not only bringing the trees in a different direction and blowing the leaves around, but it also is a metaphor for your life because at this stage, destiny stepped in and hurled your life in a different direction by leaving visa for a life a rural life of isolation with all my books it allowed me to start thinking about society as a whole not just the banking and credit card industry and returning to these three questions to pursue the answer on a broader basis the three questions were, of course, and I'll repeat them here, why are organizations everywhere, whether political, commercial, or social, increasingly unable to manage their affairs? And why are people everywhere increasingly alienated from and in conflict with the organization of which they're part? And why are society in the biosphere increasingly in disarray. To pursue that, you had to master those four ways of thinking about things as they were, history, as they are, our current situation, as they might become, 
and as they ought to be. All during these years, while I was working with my hands, thinking about this, and I guess the best way to uh, explain it is how I became over the years absolutely convinced that we were in the early stages of a global epidemic of institutional failure. And those three questions were fascinating when they first emerged, and they were compelling as this last century was ending and the new millennium was beginning. And and I think they're absolutely critical today. It should be apparent to anyone who thinks at all about it that we are in an epidemic of institutional failure. And of course, the um, coronavirus is just the latest manifestation. And I don't mean failure in the sense of collapse, but the more common and pernicious form, organizations unable to achieve the purpose for which they were created, yet continuing to exist as they devour resources, demean the human spirit, and destroy the environment. And everyone knows what I'm talking about, our unhealthy healthcare system, uh, welfare systems in which nobody fares well, schools that increasingly train and but can't educate, and corporations that can't really compete or cooperate, universities that are not universally available, agriculture that destroys soil, poisons water, degrades food, police that can't enforce the laws, unjust judicial systems, and governments that can't seem to govern, and economies that can't economize. And this uh, universal, ever-accelerating institutional failure suggests that there are deep, pervasive questions we've not asked, and some fundamental flaw in the ordering of societal relationships of which we're not aware. And no matter how much we shuffle control and responsibility back and forth from one industrial age to another, from government to private enterprise or democracy to socialism or monarchy to republic or national to municipal government, planned economy to free markets, not-for-profit to for-profit, no matter what we do in shuffling between them, the societal and environmental problems continue to accelerate. And no matter how we try to solve them with these industrial age concepts of organizations, they continually reemerge in different form, more virulent than ever. So something is deeply, fundamentally wrong. And no matter how many technological miracles we perform, no matter how sophisticated the virtual worlds we create, and no matter how many atoms we crack or how much genetic code we alter or how many space probes we launch or how much new science we discover, the problems grow progressively worse. In truth, there aren't any problems out there and there are no experts out there to solve them. The problem is internal, 
in the consciousness of you and me and every other individual in the collective consciousness of our species. And I firmly came to believe that at bottom, it's a wrong concept of organization and leadership built upon a false metaphor, which with we have to deal. And when our consciousness begins to understand and grapple with these destructive industrial age concepts to which we so desperately cling, when we're willing to risk loosening the hold these concepts have on our behavior, and when we're willing to embrace new chaotic concepts that are more in harmony with the human spirit and biosphere, then and only then will the complex societal and environmental problems yield. So, and in truth, we already know how to solve these intractable problems, whether it's global warming or anything else. What we do not know is how to implement the solutions within our archaic, cumbersome, mechanistic concepts of organization and leadership. So we are, in a profound way, the victims of our own success. Well, having those beliefs, as I was on the ranch, led me to an incredible event that I would could never have foresaw. And that was, uh, at one point, after an incredible storm, uh, when I'd returned to the house to clean up and get warm, I picked up a book that I had bought previously. On its cover was nothing but a sand dune and the title Complexity, written by a man named Waldrip. And it was a story about the Santa Fe Institute, a group of leading scientists from almost every discipline included several Nobel Prize winners, had become convinced that the science of the next century would be the study of what they called complex, self-organizing, adaptive, and self-regulating systems. They found that they couldn't pursue this science within traditional universities because they were all broken into silos. That to study this would require leading thinkers from every discipline, whether it was mathematics and physics or uh, social questions or biology or any discipline. So they had created this small institute towards the latter part of the 20th century in Santa Fe, which is kind of an outgrowth of the big atomic program that uh, was developed near Santa Fe. And I started reading this book one night and became absolutely fascinated because everything they were studying at the Institute and all the concepts they were postulating from a scientific viewpoint were almost chapter and verse what I had been trying to do and had believed in in forming Visa. 
And so I read that book through that night and was amazed that these things were emerging in the scientific world and in a way that I had never anticipated. And so the next, the very next morning, an incredible thing happened. I had a telephone call from someone I didn't remember who reminded me that when I had left Visa a number of years before, he had tried to interest me in doing some consulting and I had refused to do it because I didn't believe in consultants and didn't want to be one. And uh, he reminded me of that and told me he was involved with some people in creating another startup company. And uh, my name had popped into his mind and he was calling me to see if I'd changed my mind and was willing to do some consulting for them. And I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, but I haven't changed my mind a bit. I have no interest in consultants or consulting. And he was very understanding. And then he reminded me that the last time we'd talked some four or five years before, uh, we had discovered that we both loved to read and were interested in literature. So he reminded me that and said, uh, ask me if I'd been reading anything interesting lately. And I said, well, it's amazing you should ask because I just finished reading a book about the science of complexity in the Santa Fe Institute and was amazed at the similarity between what they were doing at the Institute and Visa. And his next words were amazing. He said, I don't believe it. I said, well, yes, but it's true. He said, well, I don't believe it because I'm a director of the Santa Fe Institute. And the chairman is a good friend of mine who lives just over the hills from you near the Stanford University. You'll just have to meet him. And the hair sort of went up on the back of my neck. Uh, because I, I couldn't believe this. And he said, I'll make an appointment with you for tomorrow, and you should have lunch with the chairman. I knew that I, I just simply had to do it. So I found myself the next day having lunch with the chairman of the Santa Fe Institute, telling him the visa story, and he was telling me the story of the Institute. The next thing I knew, he he said, you simply have to come back to the Institute. We're having our annual meeting in a couple of weeks. And would you like to tell the story of what uh, you did and address the dinner meeting of members of the Santa Fe Institute? I had, hadn't the slightest I thought of traveling or doing anything like that. But I just simply felt like... Uh, the universe was trying to tell me something and I should listen. So I accepted and two weeks later, my wife and I found ourselves flying back to Santa Fe where I uh, addressed the group of scientists. It was at that meeting that I first coined the word chaotic. And in the speech, I told them that I really found it difficult to talk about what they were doing in the language they were using. 
their belief was that the self-organizing structures emerged on the boundary between chaos and control or chaos and order. And so I simply said, I coined a word which was shorter and for me more useful to call them chaotic organization, the first uh, syllable of chaos and the first syllable of order or chaos. I also challenged them and told them that perhaps the Santa Fe Institute should be the one example of the kind of organization they were studying and that its very structure ought to be chaotic. After the dinner, a young man came up to me and introduced himself as a a program director at a a medium-sized foundation in Chicago that were making grants to try to create better uh, outcomes in organizations. And he had become enamored of the, the speech and what I was telling him. So he kept me up a good part of the night exploring my thinking and my ideas and so on. And the next day, he came to me and posed a question. And he said, well, if such a thing of visa could be created, which was literally a form of global government over a a small industry, then it certainly ought to be possible for this to spread and and affect societal organizations and bring about material change. And the more we talked, the more interested he became. So he posed another question, and he realized from our discussions that I didn't acquire wealth and didn't have a great deal of surplus funds, in fact, virtually none at all. He said, what do you think it would take to have these kinds of ideas take hold throughout society? I told him, well, I thought that was a fascinating question, that I would have to give it a lot of thought and would get back to him. And then he posed another question. He said, well, when you do, I'd like to discuss something with you. So I gave it a lot of thought, and I came back later, two weeks later after I'd come home, and uh, told him that I thought four things would have to happen, that at least a dozen or more successful new examples of chaotic organization, similar to Visa and the Internet, would have to evolve, and they'd have to emerge in different fields in education, government, social services, commerce, and the environment, and they would have to emerge in other nations and cultures so that no one could argue that these concepts were not universally applicable and that they would have to transgress all organizational boundaries and link people and institutions in diverse fields. And opportunities to create such organization would have to be discovered and uh, a substantial number of them brought about and obtained superior results. And the second thing that 
was that four-dimensional four physical models of the structures would need to be created so that people could study them and relate them to their existing organization. And such organizations simply can't be portrayed in two dimensions on a traditional organizational chart because they're more akin to the organization of neurons in a brain. And yet even the three dimensions of complex physicality are not enough. The fourth dimension uh, must be the spiritual and ethical dimension something we have completely lost sight of in our existing organization. And how to physically embody and portray that dimension would be one of the great challengers. And that in addition to the physical models, computer models would need to be created that would collapse time and graphically demonstrate in uh, 30 minutes or so how, based on clarity of shared purpose and principles, these organizations could self-organize and evolve. The examples were one, models were the second. The next one was that these would have to be sorted with an impeccable intellectual foundation. The economic, scientific, political, historical, theological, and, and technological rationale for such organizations would have to be documented and synthesized. And that a lot of that work had already been done, but it wasn't complete, nor had the language and metaphors necessary for massive dissemination yet evolved. And the fourth objective is that a global organization would have to emerge, linking in a vast complex of shared theoretical and experiential learning of the people and institutions concerned about institution failure and committed to doing something about it. And that that organization would have to self-organize in accordance with the principles it espoused and become one of the successful examples of organization. And so uh, I... Uh, called the program director at the foundation in Chicago and told him that those were the four things that I thought would have to happen, but there was absolutely no possibility that they could occur. And he disagreed with me. He felt that the thing I, I were talking about would be uh, interesting to a lot of the people they had made grants to. And he posed another question. He said, well, if the foundation was to break with all their traditions and make the first grant they've ever made to an individual, would you contribute your type and energy and use that money for travel and operational expense and do again what you did before. Go anywhere you wanted to go, do anything you wanted to do to see if there was any possibility at all that those four things might be brought about. And I told him, no, that's ridiculous. 
that a 65-year-old man wasn't going to come out of nowhere and be able to explore the possibility of these things happening and that it would frankly be a waste of money and time. But he wouldn't give up. He kept bothering me and uh, saying that he would like to go to the foundation and see if they were willing to make such a grant. And in preliminary discussions, he'd found them receptive. Well, I rejected it out of hand. But then, uh, as I sat on the ranch and continued my work there, I became sort of obsessed with this. And I got to thinking about my grandchildren and thought uh, the time might come that if this environmental global epidemic of institutional failure become serious and pronounced, that my grandchildren might be living in a society in chaos. And they might discover that I have been asked at one point to try to do something about it. And they might say to me, well, why didn't you at least try? And uh, I couldn't think of an answer I could give to my grandchildren if they were caught up in societal failure and anarchy. And I had uh, uh, not taken the challenge of the foundation regardless how questionable it might be. And so I I went back to him and said, if you will let me come to Chicago and meet with the board of directors of the foundation so that I can tell them my story and what I believe, I will consider it. And if they were to make such a grant, yes, I would donate my time and see what I could discover about the possibility of realizing these four objectives. So he agreed. So I flew to Chicago. I met with the board of directors of the foundation. I outlined the four things I thought have to happen. I told them that the chance of these things happening were, in my opinion, virtually nil and that if I were a director of the foundation, I would vote no on the grant. I would have to, because I didn't think that it would be a good expenditure of money with such slight possibilities. So I left there, and the next week I got a call from the young man who had been pursuing me, and he said, well, pack your bag. The board voted yes. And we're prepared to make a personal grant to you of $150,000 for expenses. So uh, there I was faced with a situation that would change my life in a huge way and change it forever. I was always struck throughout the book of these serendipities that happened, like that phone call just after you picked up the book on complexity, which I bought a copy, by the way, of (laughs) all the books you've mentioned in your books, I've bought copies of. But here you were at 65, 10 years after leaving Visa and living a life of bliss in nature, in family, in reading, in thinking. And you decide to embark on this new odyssey. And 
I think it's worth reminding our audience, we use the word odyssey because odyssey is different from journey. Journey, you know where you're going, but odyssey, you don't know where this voyage is going to take you. But during this next odyssey, I always found it fascinating, D, that whenever you delivered a speech and no matter what the sector, be it health or education, rarely did the people who were listening have difficulty understanding that they had an organizational problem, not an educational problem or another health problem. And these chaotic principles could be applied to everything. And I even thought about it. You mentioned the COVID-19 crisis that we're living through now, that so much of that and the organization of it could be solved with chaotic principles. And I think this is such an important thing to remember in your work and why you decided to embark on this odyssey. And it'd be great to share next where it brought you. Thank you. And well, when I reflect on my life, it seems like about every 10 to 15 years, something happens that I couldn't possibly foresee that sends my life careening in a different direction. And this certainly was one of them. So having made that commitment at age 65 and still uh, living on the uh, ranch in the home we had built, I set out on this new odyssey, which I thought was far greater and far more important than Visa. And I began again traveling the world, seeking out receptive people that I thought might understand what I was talking about. And everyone I would meet, I would share the visa story and the Santa Fe story and the four conditions that I was attempting to pursue. And then I would ask them if they thought it was possible these four things might be able to be catalyzed and brought about. And if they did think it was worth pursuing, I'd ask them who else they knew that I ought to contact who might be instrumental or influential in understanding what I was talking about. And therefore, I would reach them and continue to pursue it. And in the process, I was asked to make a speech to an organization called the Bionomics Institute. And that was based on a book called Bionomics, which had been written, was very popular, and it postulated a merger between biology and economics. And of course, that was at the heart of what I had been talking about all my life. So I went to the Bionomics Institute and made a speech to their international gathering. And uh, the speech consisted of the beliefs I had developed and the three questions I'd been pursuing. And now that, that led to the four objectives. And that got an, a tremendous response from this audience. And the speech there was recorded. And it was distributed pretty widely, which created a number of calls. And one of the calls was from 
a senior editor of one of the major publishing companies. And she was running a division of that that specialized in business stories and innovation. And uh, when she called, she said, I'm listening to a record of the speech you made, and I'm just shivering. She said, you have to write a book about this. And I kind of was irritated and thought that was kind of presumptive. And I said, well, you don't understand then what I'm talking about, because I don't have to do anything. This isn't a question of command and control. It's about a whole new way of thinking about organizations. And she sort of laughed and she said, well, of course, you don't have to do it, but how could I persuade you to do it? And I said, well, I really don't know. And I'm always occasionally a little too outspoken. I said, I don't know how you could persuade me, but maybe you could try a whole hell of a bunch of money. I don't know whether it would work or not, but you could try. And I thought that would chase her away. She just laughed and said, all right, can I come and visit you? I could be there next week. And I said, well, you know, I thought, well, you know, maybe this is what is the universe is trying to tell me something again, and I'm not listening. So I said, yes. And within a week, she was at the ranch. We came quite well acquainted, and she offered me a substantial sum of money with a large part of it up front, with nothing but the obligation to write what she called an untitled work of nonfiction. So there I was faced with the opportunity to do something I'd always wanted to do, but never had time, and that is to write a book about these things with absolutely no restrictions on how I wrote it or what it should be like or what the subject should be. And with a contract for its publication, something that almost every writer dreams about. So there I was shortly after I had started this odyssey with an opportunity to write a book, to spread the ideas, and the responsibility of continuing the odyssey to see if the four conditions should be realized. And of course, this was literally all-consuming. It meant that I would have to, very little opportunity to improve on what I'd already created in restoring these 200 acres to health and beauty but would be faced with, at the age of 65, writing book and uh, seeing if the four conditions could ever be established. The a constant quote comes to my mind when I read your work, and including here your philosophies on your website and your tweets that you continue to put out on almost a daily basis. And the quote is by Goethe, and it says, whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. And I always find that's a, such an apt quote for your life and for your boldness throughout your life and your daring and your willingness to embark on unchartered lands and voyages and 
odysseys it's just fantastic and i want to just mention as well that i know you don't take any project on willy-nilly that's for sure if anything you've proved that so i want to acknowledge that from the fact that you've decided to share your story with us on the innovation show and i'm really really grateful for that and the next show we're going to talk about is your philosophies because you continue to write and you continue to share the chaotic philosophies and the the world of chaotic and we need it more than ever before and i look forward to our next episode which will be our finale where you take us through some of those philosophies d and thank you very much for today you know the thing i will try to get across in the last episode is that there's nothing novel or unusual about my life that any individual is capable of doing these things and uh, the next episode, I'll point out that the odyssey that I set out on was was a failure. I didn't bring about the four things. But failure is not something anyone should worry about. Because even though I didn't realize the four objectives, in pursuing them, I've managed to touch thousands of people with the ideas and concepts, and I have no way of knowing where they'll go or who'll pick them up. I mean, just as I had no way of knowing, you might call. Uh, we don't have to know or succeed, but the important thing is to be willing to make the effort. You know, there's uh, that whatever you know or choose to do, you can begin it. There's another phrase that that was connected to that, I'd have to look it up to give you the exact language, but it says that when one commits themselves, then providence moves too, and all sorts of people and organization emerge to help that which otherwise could never happen. But without commitment, of course, then providence doesn't move. So when we commit ourselves to something, we have no idea what will emerge to help it. Without the commitment, nothing happens. Again, serendipity has stepped in with the COVID-19 that we have a captive audience, literally. <laughs> People are captive in their own homes. So they're going to have time to consume this content in its longest form possible. And as you said yesterday, if we reach a 1000 people, it's better than reaching a million who don't really care. So if we can change the lives of the course of lives of just a few, it's been worth every minute. I think you're right, Aiden. And uh, there's no way to know who it might touch or what they might do. And uh, probably a good thing we don't know. <laughs>